You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book so you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because he said he'll leave his wife this time if we just keep going. <laughs> my name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the walking, talking Willy Willy who lost all his magnetic shavings. Benedict, Coke or Pepsi? Oh, uh, Coke. 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 Yeah. So you were you were very quick on the draw yeah. there with Coke. Are you a Coke household? Um, uh, just whatever I could get, really. And then, uh, you know, from, from <laughs> provincial... You buy a dime bag Listen, and, you know... You, you can't wait look, too Sometimes you got to do some stuff you don't want to talk about to get your Coke. Yeah, <laughs> you know, got it. Provincial England, there's not really any, you know, <laughs> there's not that much Pepsi around. So mm-hmm. just Coke, Coke was what it is. Although I would have to say Pepsi Max over Coke Zero, I think. I'm with it. I'm definitely with it. Like we, I was a Coke household, too. We always drank Coke. But, you know, you and I, uh, being as old and ancient as we are, uh, generally need to, to stay away from all that high sugar yep. stuff these days. Yep. So I do find that when I go for, because I like a fizzy drink. Everyone likes a fizzy Who drink. Who doesn't? Uh, and so when I go for something, I'll generally go for the zero calorie or whatever it is. And I'll go, I think the Pepsi one is just closer to the actual taste. Pepsi I Max, it's, yeah. I think it's right there. Yeah, that's why I, I always used there. to get that after, you know, when I was a 10 year old kid doing soccer practice on a Saturday morning, there was a vending machine right outside where I practiced because <laughs> it was in a school that they didn't use. You know, that we just use yeah. the, the soccer area for, for practicing. So that would be like my treat at the end of soccer practice <laughs> was Pepsi Max. Um, so that was good. Oh, oh. anyways, Benedict, uh, for the second time oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> We, we, so, ladies and gentlemen, we had recorded fifty minutes. We had recorded fifty minutes of this episode. We've done these jokes already, so we're we're pretending to laugh at I jokes am, we've already heard. I'm used uh, to it because I always force my <laughs> laughter at Kevin's jokes. But but Benedict's computer crashed when we were fifty minutes into our record. We lost it, so we are back here. Tra- if it if it happens again, yeah. uh, we're fucking done. Yeah, we're fucking the, the done. The show's over. Again. The show is just gonna, you're just getting Kevin's side. That's it. That'll be it. I can't <laughs> say these same jokes over again. Literally fill in uh, the blanks. Imagine what I might have said. You all know me by now. Just imagine like the the kind of liberal leftist take on all these issues. And that's if we're gonna be honest though, most of the episodes are me talking anyway. That's so true. we can just put my track in that I still have from the first record. <laughs> yeah, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. Benedict, so we can move on. What's on your bookshelf this week? What is on my bookshelf this week is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Uh, It's one of the first kind of uh, of the 21st century, one of the first like literary historical fiction. It it revolves around um, Thomas Cromwell, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas More and the court of Henry VIII and the kind of introduction of Protestantism and how Henry VIII was trying to 
get rid of his first wife and Marianne Boleyn and then Jane Seymour and all that kind of stuff. So it's probably one that a lot of people have read already. I think it's quite a famous one as historical fiction goes. But if you haven't, then definitely check it out. I have not. And I always also just realized that I forgot to ask you for your hot take. Yes. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Let's and get I, them both out of the I way. Will say Rapid again, fire. Come on. Rainbow Road as a level on the Wii. <laughs> Mario Kart Wii is too hard. And that they should not make you do that. There shouldn't be so many ways to oh, die God. in a single level. Literally every you know, if when you're doing like a shoot 'em up game, like there are specific points in which you could die. Rainbow Road is all all the time. Like you could fall <laughs> off the edge of the world at any time. It's too hard. They should make it easier. And even if they don't, if I'm twelfth, let me finish the goddamn race. <laughs> don't just be like, You're so far behind that you don't even deserve to finish the race. I know the I'm way, far I, I behind. I should ask, is Kristen still playing Mario Kart? <laughs> While we're no, recording. she's working. She's working. I okay. have the I have the day okay. off today, but she's uh, she's hard at work. Um, she says hi, <laughs> but no, they. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm far behind. Just let me finish. Give me the dignity of crossing the goddamn finish line. Excellent. Well, my hot take this week, um, which you've already heard, mm. so will not surprise you. Let's do it. Uh, is that maybe. Jordan Peterson was right. You know... I, about cleaning your room. I know that you've already said this. I had already forgotten what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hearing my reaction for the first time. Wow, you think Jordan Peterson is right about something? Because you don't write it in the document. And it was so inconsequential to me that I had already forgotten what you said. Just about cleaning your room. <laughs> That's it. Nothing else. All right, Nothing all right. else, I promise. Okay. Uh, because, uh, yes, I've been I've been cleaning the place. I've been keeping it cleaner. And I find, and I think this is good advice for everyone, since we're all stuck at home with COVID, uh, you feel a little a little better. Your day's a little brighter when you have less clutter around and the, the floors are clean and you can walk around barefoot. I, I find it's nice. Uh, but other than that, no, Jordan Peterson wrong about just about everything. Uh, so... Also, sure. my bookshelf this week, because we've, we've just fucked this all up Who at this cares? point. We're so screwed up. On my bookshelf this week is The Boys by Garth Ennis, which is a fantastic uh, comic book series. Um, season two, of course, out today. The Amazon series. Yeah, the Z Amazon series season two of The Boys comes out today as we record on Friday. I'm super excited. I'm going to binge watch all of it after we get done recording. Uh, I'm, it's so good. It, Garth Ennis is an absurdist. It's very much a destruction of the hero narrative um, where the, the superheroes in this world he's created are all uh, corporate sellouts who are just total, completely... Um, uh, just doing whatever they want because they have the powers and they don't need to, to respond to anyone. No one can stop them. It's a great, it's a great comic book. It's a great series. It's very much absurdist, um, and I love it. So, on to housekeeping. Uh, first off, uh, the last episode of our reissue of The Faith of Donald J. Trump was issued last week, uh, so we are done with that book. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're going to do in the future, moving forward, is we are going to be doing the um, the book that we didn't finish with the old podcast, which was The Russia Hoax oh. by Greg Jarrett. And uh, we never finished it there, so I think we'll reissue the episodes we did do. And when we get to the point where we stopped, we still have the book. So I think we will finish the book 
uh, and do some new episodes for that. So that'll buy us a few more months of not having the, to increase our workload Love that. for this show. Yeah, yeah, it'll be very fun. Uh, and also, I want to mention that we forgot to draw the winners of our books, uh, our copies of Triggered on the patron-only bonus episode, which is now available over at patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. Uh, and of course, we uh, we read from a, a new book I found because my Amazon algorithm is all fucked up called 48 Liberal Lies You Probably Learned in School, which mm. is fantastic. I hate it. Uh, so you can check that out there over at Patreon. Uh, we didn't do the drawing there, so we're going to do it at the end of the episode today. But with all that out of the way, which we blew through way faster than we did the first yep. time. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Fast and loose. We return. <laughs> We return to our book review of The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro, the platonic ideal of Mama's Boy. <laughs> Benedict, what do we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read chapter one, which is called The Pursuit of Happiness, in which Ben is sad. Yes, he very much is. And <laughs> I've, I I've mention... done that. I've done that voiceover like four different times now. <laughs> and I started off being like, Ben is sad. And then every time it's got more and more, like if this fails again and I do it again, it's <laughs> Ben is sad. <laughs> That's how hard I'm um, going. But we also did the introduction to this book, uh, which in the first recording, the lost recording, mm. we did in much more the, detail. The Snyder Cut, as, it, as it's now known. Yes! <laughs> oh, God, they should have kept the Snyder Cut hidden. I'm so mad. They're going to fucking have it on HBO Max. No! You're supposed to keep it hidden so we can keep pretending there's a better version of the Justice League out there instead of just knowing it's a garbage movie all the way through. Uh, but <laughs> in this introduction, there's not a ton to talk no. about. Basically, he lays out Honestly, my note my note was that it was a little long, so maybe that yeah. we can fix that now. <laughs> the, the, basically, he lays out the reason why he's writing the book. I think a lot of it is stupid. Um, I, I, I've, I've become very reductionist now. This is dumb. This is dumb. This is dumb. The the things that were interesting is he talks about the the college campus stuff. But then I didn't notice this. But when I slammed my book in frustration because my computer crashed, it says on the back. That Shapiro is a graduate of Harvard Law School and is the nation's most requested campus speaker, which kind of belies <laughs> the fact that he's saying, oh, the campus liberals and shutting down debate. Like, if you're the most requested campus speaker, that says that you have at least a few fans on campuses. Or you Oh, he's absolutely... I, I believe that 100%. Mm -hmm. Because he is absolutely the kid that every college Republican... I, I keep calling him a kid, because he is a child, really, even though he's older than us. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the one that every college Republican club wants to invite purely for the controversy. They could give half a shit about what he says. It's just boilerplate, right-wing nonsense. They want the controversy. They want protests. They want their chance for the president of that club to get on the fucking local news and complain about, everyone's trying to get rid of our free speech. Mm -hmm. That's what they really want out of having Ben Shapiro. So I, I completely believe that. Yeah, no, I believe it too. But I just, I'm, what I'm saying is it kind of undermines his narrative of like, I'm being silenced, right? And that's why I had to write this yeah. book. Um, the, yeah. the only other thing of note is his thesis in this book is that we need to go back to a, a time where we appreciate Western civilization more and that the reason we're divided is because we don't do that and the reason why people aren't happy. Um, I actually think The Pursuit of Happiness might be a better title for the book because it has nothing to do so far with being on the right side of history because um, he spends the first few chapters Benedict, talking about it's happiness. a double entendre though don't you understand I, I get it i get it it's like that guy that was on john oliver that time who closes every segment with even when i'm wrong i'm right like what the fuck i forget <laughs> yeah. his name but 
Um, anyway. Boris Epstein. No, it's not him. It's not him. It's someone else. Eh. Um, but yes, I can also imagine him saying it. But his his in in the intro, he spends some time dismantling the other theories and reasons why people aren't happy, or or so he thinks. Um, and you know, it's it, it it's ones that actually make sense and have some academic basis behind them. In that, it's like economic anxiety has broadened. Um, that's true, undeniably. The rich have got richer. Generally, the poor have got poorer. We largely haven't re- recovered from the the two thousand seven two thousand eight financial crisis. That but is. But Benedict, thing- he does refute that by pointing out that the upper middle class has grown by twelve percent. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Perfect <laughs> refutation of that. Exactly. Um, he also doesn't talk about whether that's in raw numbers or as a percentage of the population. I don't think. I, I forget. I'm not looking at it right now. But I don't think he cites which of those is true. Um, also, racial anxiety, he dismantles by saying, hey, we don't have slavery or Jim Crow anymore. So <laughs> that's not uh, that can't be the answer. Again, not the case. Um, obviously, we don't have slavery or Jim Crow, although there is a certain amount of the legacy of Jim Crow that still survives in, in mm, school. You know, we still have slavery in a lot of prisons. It, it's a thing. Certainly also true. Yep. Everyone yeah. should watch 13th. Everyone should read the new Jim, the new Jim Crow, which is equally good um and what what were the other ones oh we're polarized because we all hate each other yep sure okay yes that contributes to people's unhappiness and then human nature being the other one the point being he rejects all these as premises for why we might be unhappy and why we might feel more divided instead of adding his own thesis and saying this is how this contributes to these things all these well-established pretty well respected and reasoned reasons for why people aren't happy he rejects outright and says these can't be right because we're living in the best world we've ever lived in yeah lots of people don't feel that though lots of people you i'm sure you do i do i'm sure you do kevin as well like we our lives are pretty good like our lives are probably better now for the social class and status that we find ourselves in than they would have been you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Our and, lives and in are general, I, I feel like we live better lives now than in the time before the advent of flush toilets. I just, I, I feel like in general, most people would agree as history progresses, things do get better on a quality Generally. of life. With, with a few notes, But I think what he's rejecting yeah. out of hand is that there are still issues with society because he lives a good life and he doesn't understand why people feel as though things are bad when there are, you know, obviously improvements over 150 years ago. Yeah, and also I think the other thing to note here is that you can't... He's he's trying to set up a relative happiness scale for people Mm -hmm. who never experienced things as they were before. And it's like it's like yeah. one of those things like now we have technology, we have the Internet. I can't imagine a time when the the most exciting form of entertainment for me was reading a book. I love reading, but I can't imagine life without the Internet. Right. So like my baseline level of entertainment, happiness, whatever it is, is set by the context with which I am surrounded. I can't look back and go, well, you know, these people must have been really fucking bored. Like it doesn't work that way because they also didn't build their <laughs> lives around the same things that we build our lives around. So it, yeah. you just can't make direct comparisons about happiness within a quality of life framework necessarily in that way. Exactly. And with that, we move on to chapter one, 
The Pursuit of Happiness. And All Benedict, right. do you have an alternate chapter title? I do. It is, uh, it is chapter one, Public Therapy. <laughs> it very much is for him. Uh, and I have several, uh, starting with True Happiness is Fear of Eternal Torture. Okay. Uh, take Your Pills, Ben. Another one. <laughs> you started with that one last time. It really, yes, yes. I nearly spat my, my water out. And my last one is, you're not really happy until you give up everything you enjoy and become a reactionary. <laughs> Which I think is a good overall thesis for the entire book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You've got so, to be a little reactionary. Which, I mean, yeah. maybe that's true. So we start off this chapter with him writing the question, and he forgot the opening quotation on this because it's a question that came from his wife. Um, Are you happy? is the question that she asked him. And I'm 100% sure he answered no to that question. No to no. <laughs> I mean, no. he kind of heavily implies that he answered, ha- answered no. Well, knowing that his house has entirely DAP, um, <laughs> that I-, I know there's no happiness there. <laughs> All right. Uh, did you know his wife is a doctor, by the way? Yes. Yes, I did, in fact, as a matter of fact. And I, I have a feeling that's going to be the new Kimberly, my girlfriend of this book, <laughs> is my wife, the doctor. Yeah, right? I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. So but yeah, he, he, he says, talks- sorry, he says, he says, sure, of course I am. As if that's an emphatic answer to the question, are you happy? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. And he talks about what was going on in his life at this time. I, you know, I can't guess when this was. He says he was trying to put together the Daily Wire and do his podcast and his campus tours and all that kind of stuff. I think that's after, I mean, after he left Breitbart, so probably 2016. Yeah. Sometime around then, probably, right? I don't know when all that was going on. Uh, but so he talks, right, he gets into this question, are you happy, right? Because that's what this chapter is about. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how, well, you know, it is an important question. He said it's the most important question, the most crucial yeah. one. Which I actually, I, I fundamentally disagree with. I think that that is quite pri- quite a privileged way of, of analyzing the situation in the sense that, like, actually the critical question is, are you surviving? Like, that is that is the first question that, that we should be looking at and thinking about for people. And, like, once you've got that, and we'll get onto this when we, when we talk about what the pursuit of happiness means to people, but, like... Do you have enough food is a much more important question to me than are you happy? Because you, right, can't, I, you can't be the latter without the former. And well, yeah, I get that, but I sort of disagree. I mean, I don't want to say I disagree, but I think that it is an important question to say yeah. that it's not. I, I don't know about the most crucial, but I think those elements you're talking about add into the overall question of are you happy? Yeah, no, I think sure. they can I, all be combined into the are you happy question. I just I think you can have a he, we'll get on to talk about how purpose is happiness in his point of view. And like, even if you have a purpose, if you're starving, you're probably not happy. So I think it is a critical building block of happiness of like, are you worried you might die in the next week? And if the answer to that is yes, you are probably not a happy person. Sure, sure. We can agree on that. Sure. So he he asks the reflective question. He asks, so was I happy? And then follows that with, quote, or more precisely, when was I most happy? This is a weird Formula- Don't you think? Like, it is. A weird- it is. He continues, formulated like that, the question became easy. On Sabbath, which I know he's lying about because he only brings up Sabbath at one point in this chapter. <laughs> he brings up golf multiple times. Okay, okay. Do you think he's a good golfer? I wonder what his handicap is. I have no idea. I grew up on a golf course in California. 
I despise golf with all of my heart. I despise golf. It's a terrible game. Anything you can play while drinking and smoking is not a sport. That is my hard and fast <laughs> uh, position. Excuse me, darts. <laughs> you want to argue darts is a sport? Go for it. I'm not going to get into it with you. But he then goes on, and he's talking about, right, he covers politics for a living. But mm. in his perception, politics isn't the root of happiness. And what he's trying to set forward here is this false claim, I think, that the left views politics as a source of happiness. And he says, quote, yeah. That's why Thomas Jefferson didn't write that the government was granted power to grant you happiness. Mm. It was there to protect your pursuit of happiness. The government existed to protect your rights, to prevent those rights from being infringed upon. The yeah. government was there to stop someone from stealing your horse, from butchering your sheep, from letting his cow graze on your land. <laughs> Weird examples, Ben. That sounds like something's <laughs> happened to you. Um, a couple of things there. I think it ties back into what I was saying earlier of like what what the pursuit of happiness and the guarantee of the pursuit of happiness means. Because I think Ben probably has a very different idea of that to, to what I have. And I think you can read what he's written in a very leftist way of like, if the government is guaranteeing your pursuit of happiness, that by definition has to mean that the government is guaranteeing that you are not dying, that you are not starving, that you have enough water, that you are not homeless, you know, like all the basic requirements that have to be boxes that are ticked before you can even begin to think about what it means to be happy and whether you can pursue that. Right. So I think there there is definitely like a a leftist reading of the government guaranteeing you the pr pursuit of happiness rather than even uh, like, uh, granting you happiness is is not a promise that anybody can make. Certainly not a government. Um, right. But the and, I, and I disagree with I Go disagree ahead. with what I think is his false claim there that the left wants the government to guarantee happiness. Yeah. I think we just disagree left and right on what guaranteeing the ability to pursue happiness means. Yeah. I think that's, and that's the straw man that he's setting up. And I've heard this for a long time, right? The left wants to guarantee happiness. Well, that's never been the case. That's just a usual, that's a right wing bullshit talking point. Mm -hmm. We don't want to guarantee happiness, but we have different ideas of what the pursuit of happiness means and what it means to guarantee the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And it comes down to the whole, <laughs> generally, like it, it, it broadens into the debate of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome we're not going to be able to make everyone happy, but everyone should be able to pursue it on the same grounds. And for some people to do that, it's, it's an equity thing. Some people will never have to worry about not having enough food. Some people will. And it's for those people that we should provide food. And therefore by doing that, they can pursue happiness in the same way as the person that isn't starving or on the verge of starvation or on the poverty line. Right. Right. So th th and, there is a there is a, a basic thing, basic level of thing that the government should do in order to guarantee from a left wing perspective in order to guarantee the pursuit of happiness. Right. And I also disagree with, I think, the implication he's making here that the left finds happiness from politics. Mm. Right. Because this just goes back to the big government, small government bullshit, false dichotomy they want to push. Right. 
they think the left is all about big government. That's their the starting point for every argument that they make, as though that's that's what it's really all about, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's bullshit that he's trying to claim that we get happy. I certainly don't get much happiness out of politics. I don't think most people do. I think more than anything, politics is a source of anxiety when a party that is diametrically opposed to your rights or your existence mm-hmm. is in office and in control and is directly threatening you or people you care about. Yeah, I think I think there are times, you know... It, when when policy directly affects you like for example yeah. um Oberger Falvey versus Hodges or what what is it is that the name yeah Oberger Falvey right? Hodges yeah yeah yep. so i mean you know i'm sure lots of people were happy about that but only after years of not that you know like not being able mm-hmm. to marry the person that they love and uh, because of the law right. said it wasn't allowed so I- but i wouldn't even call that getting happiness from politics Right. I would call that getting happiness from an outcome. That's I think those are two completely different things. But we need to move on a little bit. Sure. And he goes into, so I'll read this quote. Quote, instead of looking inward to find ways to better their lives, we've decided that the chief obstacle. Ooh, and I just realized he had a grammatical mistake there. Oh. Um, instead of looking for ways to better their lives, we've decided. Grammatical mistake there. Um, we've decided that the chief obstacle to our happiness is outside forces. Even in the freest, richest country in the history of the world, this desire to silence or subdue those who disagree with us has been reaching new, terrifying heights. And then he uses an example that makes absolutely zero sense. Yeah, we spent about five minutes talking about this. I think we worked it out <laughs> of, like, he basically accuses... So he says that Obama issued this executive amnesty for the Dreamers, essentially. Um, and... Trump revoked that but said Congress should pass a law which okay but then he was like everybody freaked out even though they said the exact same thing like manifestly they did not say the exact same thing one gave people rights one took people's rights away and said oh but maybe we should fix this in the future right that is not the same policy one of them does something one of them retracts it but says that we should do something that right. is not and, the and same ben thing. And knows, Ben knows perfectly well that the Republicans had no intention of passing an act that would protect the Dreamers. He absolutely knows that, but he pretends that the, the back and forth, people calling each other terrible, um, is over, quote, the exact same policy, which makes zero fucking sense. Right? Yeah. We talked about this when we had Stephen Robbins on uh, for mm. the uh, triggered immigration chapter, pretending that there's no difference between these reactionary right-wing shitbags and how they want to kick every single brown person out of the country that they can, and Democrats is fucking ridiculous. It's yeah. just fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's I remember when that whole false. policy debate was going on, the Democrats were perfectly prepared to pass fucking legislation on the Dreamers. Republicans kept trying to do other shit. Even There's to no the point of, of funding some of the wall, right? Which is against everything yeah. the Democrats kind of stand for. It, yeah, they were willing to do that. Yeah. So... We move on, and and we mentioned, we talked about earlier, the first time we recorded this, <laughs> that this book is much better footnoted than I think any yeah. that we've read. It yeah, actually yeah. has extensive, or endnotes, rather. And um, so that makes it easier on me, because I'm the one who does all of the researching and fact-checking on the things they write, <laughs> uh, to actually go and follow the path of what they say. So I'm just going to read this next uh, paragraph and a half or so. Quote, Our politicians know that we seek happiness through them. And they capitalize off that misguided quest. In 2008, Michelle Obama said that Americans should back her husband because he could help us fix our souls. How exactly? She explained, quote, 
Barack Obama, and this is quoting Michelle Obama now, mm -hmm. Barack Obama, ellipsis, is going to demand that you shed your cynicism, that you put down your divisions, ellipsis, that you push yourselves to be better and that you engage. Barack will never allow you to go back to your lives as usual, uninvolved, uninformed. In May 2016, then-candidate Trump openly stated, quote, I will give you everything. I will give you what you've been looking for for 50 years. I'm the only one. Okay. Great. Not the same. For the first part, for the first part comparing those two yeah. is fucking ridiculous. They're saying completely different things. Yeah. For one, uh, Michelle Obama was saying that we're going to you know, make you change your lives and actually work to become a better person. Well, see, yeah, the first Trump one is, is literally I'm just going promising to... to give whatever you exactly. fucking want. The first one is I'm going to make you think. The second one is I'm going to give you stuff. Like, yeah. But I also took the time to look up that full quote without the ellipses that Ben conveniently put in there. Mm -hmm. And the full quote is as follows, quote, Barack Obama will require you to work. He is going to demand that you shed your cynicism, that you put down your divisions, that you come out of your isolation, that you move out of your comfort zones, mm -hmm. that you push yourselves to be better and that you engage. Barack will never allow you to go back to your lives as usual, uninvolved, uninformed. There's a pretty significant difference given the words that he left out in particular, I think in two ways. One, it clearly emphasizes that it's going to require work on the part of the individual, mm -hmm. which I think cuts against this narrative he's pushing of they're just claiming they're going to give you stuff. Yeah. And two, it very clearly mentions moving out of your comfort zones and your isolations, yeah. your bubbles, which is something he talked about in the introduction to this book as one of the non-existent prob problems uh, that are part of why our society is apparently so bad. Yeah, and I mean, that's something that Obama has always pushed. Like, he has always pushed for people to, even, you know, to, to when talking about kind of activists and democratic activists and echo chambers, you know, one of his biggest criticisms has always been, you got to talk to other people. And at the end of the day, like in politics, you got to work with people that you don't agree with to get stuff done. So, like, purity politics has always been something Obama has criticized um you know i personally think he goes a little too far in his criticism of purity politics i think you can hold people to a certain moral standard um and an activist that is what activists are for is to to pull people towards the activist p position by engaging in a certain amount of purity politics um but yeah i mean it, it, it's certainly not out of character for obama to say something like that and i'm going to continue on with this next quote quote why have we invested so much meaning, so much time, so much effort in brutal policy fights over seemingly minor matters when none of it brings us closer to happiness? <laughs> because, <laughs> and here we are, it is literally life and death to some people. I, you could look at, like, yeah. okay, the well, opioid well, they're, crisis. They're, they're minor matters to Ben. Yeah. To Ben. Exactly, exactly. So and I, he's unable to get outside of his scope. His yeah. scope of reference. Sure. I, I mean, even if he does get beyond that, it certainly doesn't encompass all of America's scope. There are places, for example, that are going through the opioid crisis. Passing opioid legislation, limiting the people's ability to prescribe opioids and get hold of opioids, that is not a minor thing. It seems like a minor thing, potentially, if you are not affected by that. That is, again, a thing that will fundamentally affect people's happiness if their loved ones are dying of opioid overdoses or if they're dying of opioid overdoses or having their life controlled by opioids because they're addicted to opioids. It's the same with climate change. If there's... If your house is on the coast and in a flood zone, you are going to be anxious about, again, fundamentally, a building block to your happiness is not being anxious about things in your life that the government controls or could control. So 
therefore the fights that we get into over policy often it's people are worried about things that affect them directly sometimes it's people having empathy for those people like i don't know how to explain to you that you should have empathy right like that <laughs> neither do i <laughs> being empathetic is something that gives me often sadness but happiness if i can help improve somebody else's station in life or somebody else's you know anyone stopping the oppression or the anxiety or anything like that is something that is often achieved through politics and therefore it can make me happy but it's purpose-driven all politics is to some extent purpose-driven right and his you might whole, say that empathy can provide a moral purpose it, you outside might say of that, that which ben posits is the underlying purpose of life you might say that you might say that anyway i'm i'm ranting and yes you are but <laughs> but we move on and I, I i gotta say i gotta mention that this uh book unlike several of the last few we've read has subheadings in the chapters which i love because it makes it so much easier to follow along with the nonsense and figure out what is the topic that we're supposed to be referencing here. I love it when they do that. They definitely should, because it makes it so much easier. That's true. Uh, and so the, the subheading of this next section is called, Happiness is Moral Purpose. No, it's not. <laughs> not it can necessarily. Be. Surely. It can be. It sure can be, but you can't just assert that. It, it, certainly that is one form of happiness, but it is not necessarily mm -hmm. the only form. Yes. Well, he starts off this subsection, this, I'll call them subsections, it's better than subheading, um, with, quote, pleasure can be gained from a variety of activities. Golf, fishing, playing with your children, or sex. Okay, so, those are the only four. Yeah, no, not golf. There can be no pleasure from golf. But I had to highlight when he brings up golf, because as I mentioned, I think he likes golf much more than he likes the Sabbath. <laughs> probably. It's probably true. So he introduces to us in this subsection his idea of where happiness comes from. And he starts with two concepts. One is a Hebrew word, simcha. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia, right? Okay. And so for him, his description, and I don't know if it's completely accurate because I didn't have time to do a bunch of research on Hebrew ideas and terms, um, was that it is actin, acting in accordance with God's will. That's mm -hmm. his idea of, of simcha, right? Mm -hmm. And... That, even on a base level, is very different from eudaimonia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, he, he doesn't really doesn't really spend any time defining the terms. So no. he says it in a way that's like, oh, well, the, the ancient Hebrews called it this, and the Greeks called it this, so you can see how different they are. They're just different languages. Like, one is, <laughs> <laughs> one is Hebrew, one is Greek. I'm sure they have different philosophical meanings, but unless you explain those... Just saying words like, oh, well, you know, I believe in the con concept of freedom in English, but then the Spanish have this concept called libertad. So, you know, those are just two <laughs> completely different things. But I think there is a difference between the I'm, two, right? Because I, that look, I'm sure there is, but he spends no yes. time explaining no, it. No, he doesn't. But Simcha, he, what he's putting out right there, that's the idea of living in accordance with God's will, as I said, right? Which is basically, there's, there's this book, you need to follow this book. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia is living in accordance with reason. Very different from the idea of revealed truth, right? Yeah. Very different concepts. But he's very much, and he will continue throughout this book, try to blur the lines between them yeah, and combine them so you I forget think they are different. I think fundamentally incompatible. And there, to be fair to him, there has been a lot of theology done around trying to make them compatible. But I think it's, it's one of those things where people just 
create tie themselves in knots trying to make i don't think ben shapiro is adding anything to the our reason and christianity compatible <laughs> discourse i think that when that probably reached its peak with aquinas uh, with um yeah with aquinas in the 13th century and i don't think ben shapiro has anything new to say on it 700 years later really call me crazy but i think i agree with you all right uh, i don't think ben shapiro has very much deep philosophical content to add to the discussion but I will read for you um, his attempt to, I think, synthesize the two, which is, quote, So in the end, the Bible and the philosopher come to the same conclusion from opposite directions. No. The Bible, <laughs> the Bible commands us to serve God with happiness and identifies that moral purpose with happiness. Aristotle suggests that it is impossible to achieve happiness without virtue, which means acting in accordance with a moral purpose that rational human beings can discern from the nature of the universe. Yeah. And yeah, um, it's the revealed truth versus discovery dichotomy that he's yeah. blurring the lines between there yeah which are fundamentally incompatible there's yeah. no there's no way th there was no exploration to do of the ten commandments right that's just like this is how you have to live because also i mean when he says when he talks about the revealed truth he's talking about the ten commandments most of the mm -hmm. time because he's he's talking about the truth that was revealed on mount sinai which is when God gave Moses the yeah. Ten Commandments. Which we're right? going to get so, in the next chapter. That's what yeah. the next chapter is all about. So he continues on, and I, I just, you'll know in a moment why I had to read this paragraph. Quote, If all this sounds like a more restrictive version of happiness than we're used to, that's because it is. Happiness isn't rolling around in the mud at Woodstock, nor is it a nice golf game after a rough day at work. <laughs> Loves Kevin golf, is reading man. all the golf Oh, ben loves that golf, and like, yeah, I have a gripe against golf. I hate golf. I can't stand it. It's not a real, not a real sport. Don't yeah. understand the appeal. <laughs> Cannot understand. Will not. Refuse to. I've never liked any of the people I know who enjoy golf. All I'll right. say it that much. No, I'm sure I like some of them. Uh, my parents. Uh, it's iffy. Yeah. Uh, but so he continues on in this subsection, basically ending it off with talking about how uh, studies show that people with a strong sense of purpose in their life tend to be healthier and live longer. I'm sure that's great. true. Again, yeah. Yeah, I have no reason to doubt that that's true. Really no reason at all. Uh, but again, that purpose doesn't have to be the purpose that Ben is positing here. It can be yeah. literally any purpose. Yeah, it also doesn't mean that that is the only way that one can be happy, right? Like Exactly. I, and, and just because you're happy doesn't necessarily mean you live longer as well. Like... And I, I do think there's a certain amount of, like, <laughs> what is the the average means of somebody who says they have a purpose in life, right? Right. I think that there's a certain classist analysis that we can do here as well of, like, if the average household income of a per person that thinks they have a purpose in life is 10% higher than people that don't, that's probably right. a correlation. I don't think the happiness or whatever is the factor there necessarily. I think there are very much intervening factors, yeah. um, possibly leading to leading to that outcome. Yeah, but, but we I just don't explore only... that here. It's, uh, it, it's just like this is the only possible reason for this. So. Yeah, there was one of the, the the pieces of evidence he dropped that I did find funny and I wanted to read, which is quote. A study of teenagers found that those who increased their empathy and altruism most also saw the greatest drop in cardiovascular risk. So, not young Republicans. They're <laughs> definitely, definitely not that They've group. just got high blood pressure all the time. Yeah. So, the end of this subsection is where he sets up the, I think, 
what I think is going to be the thesis for the book, because I have seen it in other parts of the book mentioned, mm. um, and he definitely meant, picks it back up in, in chapter three, where he says, quote, we need, in my estimate, four elements, individual moral purpose, individual capacity to pursue that purpose, communal moral purpose, and communal capacity to pursue that purpose. These four elements are crucial. The only foundation for a successful civilization lies in a careful balance of these four elements. And I would guess that he's going to suggest that the only way to get uh, a careful balance of those four elements is in Western culture. Oh, that's absolutely what he's going to say. That's absolutely it. So we start off the next sub subsection subsection. That's the word I'm using. I have to uh-huh. remember that. I have to write it on a post-it note, which nice. is called the necessity for individual moral purpose. And he starts right. off just by glossing over that in pre-biblical societies, uh, your your status, your position was fixed. It's not as though the entirety of the Middle Ages was built upon the great chain of being. I believe that was the name of it. I can't remember if that's right. Um, where you were, had a fixed social station in feudal society. It's a weird way of, like, going back to Hammurabi's code is a weird way of beginning this. And it, it, it's, um, yeah, it also just, like, we all have inherent value is a weird way he gets onto that and it's saying like we all have inherent value that i i really dislike that description of of like what 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 does he mean when he says that right is it like i think he's just pulling off of the religious wooey we all have value type idea i think that's where he's pulling that from yeah i just i you know I don't think... I, I agree with the idea. Yeah. I don't know I don't what like he's getting at with it. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right. Also, so I just... Says, I do, hold on. I fundamentally exa- object to... He says this a lot. I fundamentally object to Judeo-Christian as a characterization <laughs> of anything. Because I, I think until the last maybe 40 years, 50 years, that hasn't been a historical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Judeo-Christian character of anything. We've tried to retrofit it on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't work if you know anything about history or geopolitics I mean, or the treatment of Judaism by Christianity over oh, the yeah. years. So I know that Ben knows that the entire world has a long history of anti-Semitism, including all these societies, the founding fathers, everything that he's going to say make Western civilization great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, exactly. Even the fucking Greeks. Like, <laughs> So he says, quote, Without individual moral purpose granted by a relationship to a creator, we seek meaning instead in the collective, or we destroy ourselves on the shoals of libertinism. That's Not- a huge leap, too. Like, it, <laughs> I know. It, that, that is a really big leap. Um, and then he said, yeah, well, he says we seek meaning instead in the collective. Um, okay. I mean, that's kind of, that, that is what religion is. So It really I, is, I, though, yeah, yeah. Like, seeking meaning in the collective is, sure, okay. But he also continues with, quote, we all live lives of amoral, uh, if you don't have a relationship with the creator, he says, we all have lives of amoral hedonism in the non-disparaging sense. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I get that there can be a non-disparaging sense yeah. for that, but that's but not the way he means it. if someone came up to me and was like, you're an amoral hedonist, I'd that's, be, well. very, <laughs> that's very much saying no offense before saying yeah. something completely offensive. I mean, offensive. I, I wouldn't, I, personally, I wouldn't care because whatever, that's fine. But like, that is not, a, that is a loaded 
thing to say. Yes. Like, it, it's there's certainly an, like if you calling something amoral is by definition putting judgment upon it, like that you are categorizing it and therefore judging it. Like, right. And he goes on a little bit with, ah, we need religion. Voltaire said he wants everyone to be religious because then he, he wouldn't live, you know, in a bad society, blah, you know, blah, blah. This bit is amazing because, mm -hmm. like, Voltaire, one of the most famous satirists ever, said mm -hmm. this thing that if you read it straight, <laughs> proves my point. But if you read it as maybe Voltaire was fucking kidding. Oh, God. He's very much the kind of guy who reads, like, uh, Oh, fuck. Who wrote uh, Kurt Vonnegut and just, you know, doesn't understand that there's more to the words. He's Kurt very Vonnegut is actually pro-war if you read him closely. <laughs> <laughs> so he finishes this subsection with, quote, It matters how we fill that need for an individual moral purpose, yet we're continually drawn to false gods. We proselytize endlessly for everything from intersectionality to consumerism. From Instagram to organic food, from political protest to essential oils, how many of us truly feel that lifelong purpose is to be found in those transitory distractions? Mm. Whatever, man. I, like, <laughs> this thing, that's what I expected from you. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, and, and also, like, again, it's not hypocrisy, but just, like, he is everywhere on social media. Like, mm -hmm. he could very easily write books, and that's it. Like, he, very easily he could do that. He, he doesn't do that. So when he's like, all oh, these people on Instagram are, 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 are wasting their lives, and like, fuck you, dude. Like, sh shut at your show then. Like, I very much, I don't know, because I haven't looked. Is Ben Shapiro on, uh, what's the right-wing Twitter called? Um, Parler? Parler. Oh, Is he damn. on Parler? Is it Parler? I can't I imagine he would be on... I can't imagine he'd be on Parler or Gab because they are just fucking neo-Nazi hellholes. Yeah. Um, but I feel like bad, he, yeah. he might be. I feel like he might no, be. No, I don't think so. I think he's never got as frustrated with Twitter as, like, the true... Um, like, the, the people who made that leap but are also still on Twitter anyway, so... Unless they've been banned. Continuing on, though. The next subsection is entitled The Necessity for Individual Capacity. And yes, we're just going to go through all four of those elements he laid out in that one paragraph. That's going to be the rest of this chapter. And he starts mm -hmm. this one off by saying, quote, It's not enough to know our individual moral purpose. To know that, we must seek happiness through virtuous action. In order for us to be happy, we must also believe that we can pursue that happiness with some degree of success. We must believe that we have the capacity to cultivate and utilize a skill set that we're free, active agents in our own lives. And again, I... Those are a series pure... of disconnected statements, largely. Like, Yeah. But again, it's that pure formalism thing that I've talked about, right? Yeah, Where yeah. It, it's not looking at the real world. It's not wondering whether someone actually has the ability. It's whether someone has the hypothetical ability to pursue happiness, right? That's what he really cares about. It's not actual capacity. Yeah. And he's, he follows that with what I thought was a fucking great sentence. All of the American founders were self-help specialists. Actually, they weren't. They enslaved people to help them. Yes! Uh, they, had, they had hundreds, in some cases, of, or thousands of other selves helping them. Yeah. yeah, Washington spent his formative years copying out rules of civility. Who has the time? People that hold slaves. <laughs> It's so ridiculous when you add just that tiny bit of context. Yeah. Uh, but that's why they never, that's, I think, why they never want to talk about 
slavery and all of the issues of American history, right? Because then you do destroy the the image of the founders as self-made men. No, yeah, it's a it's a had, myth. It's a myth. Exactly. It is very much a myth. That's why there are books, entire books called The Myth of the Founders. Yeah. Um, so this subsection just gets into we need to exist as a society. But his idea of existing as a society is basically government needs to stay out of our way so that we have the ability to do what we want and can succeed if we're rich white men who already have a variety of advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it glosses over the necessary preconditions for what constitutes pursuing happiness, I think. Right. And the only other thing I picked up out of this subsection, because it's basically worthless, um, was a little bit where, and I'll, I'll just read it. Quote, Finally, we must believe that we are pursuing true goals, not merely effective ones. Darwinian evolution leaves no room for the true. It only leaves room for the evolutionary beneficial. Which is great, because Ben Shapiro is not an anti-evolutionist. But he knows his fucking audience, and he knows he has to pander to... And I spent, like, 20 minutes yesterday looking into Ben Shapiro and his statements on evolution. And he has gotten much more openly pandering to the young earth creationist evangelical Christians over the last few years than he has in the past. It's remarkable. It's really astonishing to see. Okay. Yeah, I I, I have not spent my time doing that, thankfully. But, uh, yeah. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. Thank you. This is what you pay me for. So, and he does have a two plus two equals five joke in here, which is just dumb. Um, But the next subsection is called the necessity for communal moral purpose, Mm. which begins, quote, we are social creatures, not merely individuals. That means we seek contact and want to feel like part of something larger than ourselves. Perfectly true statement. Mm -hmm. I have no issues with any of that statement. I do have where he continues some issues. Uh, where he gets into, for example, talking about how th- that relationship needs to be built in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that might be an issue for me, since I feel like I myself have communities without being part of that tradition. Yeah, and also has nothing to do with moral purpose, right? So, I mean, he says, what builds communities, a shared vision of what the community's moral purpose is. That is not true. That, yeah, I, it, that absolutely might, not. That might be true for some communities. If I'm friends with my neighbor and we talk about football... That is what builds our community, right? Like yeah. there are other ways that communities can be built. Maybe it's not well, your platonic ideal of a community, but I'm sorry. No, but I, I, I do want to highlight how fucking um, white male centric that idea is of entirely homogenous communities, right? Yeah. The idea of someone who grew up in the fucking suburbs that's their idea of a fucking community. Everyone looks like me. They act like me. They go to the same churches as me, the same schools as me, all that shit. Whereas for people like myself, my idea of a community is actually a set of communities coexisting together mm. and forming a larger community, right? That's, I mean, like, fucking diversity is antithetical to these fucking people. Yeah, and I think you, you can say it, it's probably built on shared values more often than mm-hmm. not, but I don't think shared values necessarily correlates with moral purpose. Uh, but, and again, this is a, a mostly worthless subsection, so I'll just read the last paragraph of it again, which I think sums it up pretty well, and pretty much displays his horrific racism is quote the best countries and the best societies are those where citizens are virtuous enough to sacrifice for the common good but unwilling to be forced to sacrifice for the greater good flourishing societies require a functional social fabric created by citizens working together and yes separately towards a meaningful life 
which there is so much to fucking unpack yeah. in that paragraph. That's First the libertarian off, paragraph, right? Like, don't make me pay more taxes is basically the well, thrust of this paragraph. It's that, but there is some very much some racism buried in that paragraph. The best countries. We mm. know what Ben thinks the best countries are. We've heard him write about how you can bomb the not best countries as much as you want. And they tend to be very different than Ben himself. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a definite undercurrent in there because Ben, of course, would not consider any country with a majority of brown people to be one of the best countries or the best societies. No. It's fucking ridiculous. Maybe he'd do the, the racist call out to fucking Japan. He might do that shit. Um, but it's it's just there's so much in there and it's fucking ridiculous to me that when you write this, you don't stop and think when you're saying the best countries and the best society. I think the best societies part is the one that hits harder Mm -hmm. because it's the idea of the people within it having a value that can be ranked against others, which is, is just gross. Yeah, especially, especially for knowing who's what been he thinks. Like, especially for someone who's been like, everyone has inherent value, but American inherent value is higher than yours. <laughs> Four legs good, two legs better. Exactly. exactly. So the next subsection and the final one of this chapter is entitled The Necessity for Communal Capacity. And he begins this by just stating conclusions, as we've talked about, and then not bothering to delve into them at all, discuss whether those conclusions are true or the basis for them, anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he starts with, quote, The pursuit of individually and communally virtuous goals can only be effectuated when strong social institutions thrive. Institutions like churches and synagogues and and social clubs and charity. He didn't, I should note that one's not in there. I don't know where you got that. You're reading a different book. (laughs) And charity organizations. And when government is both strong enough to protect against anarchy and limited enough to check its tendency towards tyranny. That's definitely a call out to the libertarian stuff. Also, nothing to back that up. No, Nothing there's no, I mean, yeah, exactly. Right. The pursuit of, in, they can only be effectuated with these particular institutions, which Ben finds to be of value, which Just I, of course, fundamentally, I, I don't. Fundamentally untrue, given the fact that th- there is a different balance in most, like in all of those, those things in different countries around the world. And most countries, like you don't, you don't think people, are unable to do this in Sweden because the government is bigger, right? <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't work as an argument. Yeah. And he's, what he's going to try and do for the most part here is separate society and government. That's his big thrust. He actually says, society is not the government, government is not society. And he continues that by saying, quote, In the past, we've conflated communal capacity with powerful government. After all, big governments build things. In 2012, the Democratic National Convention featured a video with the slogan, quote, government's the only thing we all belong to. That belief has been the defining feature of tyrannies the world over. The utopian notion that if we all pull our oars in the same direction at the behest of centralized government, we'll be able to accomplish more together. Benedict, do you remember the first time we heard that quote? (laughs) I do not, know. Dinesh gave us that That quote, except except he horribly lied about it, remember? He said that that was the slogan of the 2012 Uh, DNC. And then mischaracterized it and had it out of context. I remember that. I had to read that because I remembered that one so well. Uh, It just stuck out so much to me. But, I mean, again, 
uh, he's a mischaracterizing and straw manning the concept, right? That it's all about doing things at the behest of a centralized government. Well, yeah. No, government is a tool that we use to pull the oars in the same direction. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we absolutely can accomplish more together if we work in yeah. a communal fashion. That's than if we work a fairly known thing, right? And he also the, he starts the next paragraph. That's dangerous stuff. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and this is the paragraph where I go, oh, oh, Ben. Uh, would have opposed the civil rights movement. Yeah. Most definitely. Where he writes, quote, that's dangerous stuff, as you said. It's tempting to mobilize our ardor for collective mobilization and use it as a state-wielded club to force individual vor- virtue or to force large-scale change. But yeah, that's, that's the same exact thing that people who were against the rulings of the Warren Court on civil rights or the passage of the Voting Rights Act, things like that, would have said, probably did say, mm. very similar things to that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's tyranny. Yeah, the tyranny rarely begins with jackboots bits. That that comes at the end of that paragraph is it, and it usually begins with ardent wishes for a better future. <laughs> sure, but I mean, normally arises out of desperation too when governmental failings have happened, often because they've been undermined and dismantled by right wing people who complain that government doesn't work because every time they're in power they further dismantle the apparatus of government which is something that we've seen the republican party do repeatedly over the since reagan basically right and he does give us his idea of what communal positive communal capacity in his words looks like quote it looks like a governmental system capable of mobilizing to stop external threats but unable to threaten individual liberties so that's just the the libertarian idea bullshit we we've glossed over the fact that his his like key example of um individualism (laughs) is footloose footloose. (laughs) yeah he's like oh americans (laughs) americans don't like puritans telling kevin bacon he can't dance which just like come on there's a better nobody tells kevin bacon he can't dance exactly i feel like nobody puts baby in a corner as a much better like (laughs) dirty dancing was the move here dude like absolutely oh you could have used nobody puts baby in the yeah it's just just poor right let's just say that's just the worst choice of this book yeah uh but then i was wrong two, there is... you had two dance movies to pick from and you picked the wrong one <laughs> he's he wasn't allowed to watch dirty dancing there's no way ben was allowed to watch dirty dancing his uh, wife so who's wrong. a doctor thought it was a porno and banned him from watching it uh so i was wrong there is one final sub chapter or a sub uh, section of this chapter it is entitled the ingredients for happiness it's basically just a wrap-up of what we gotten so far and it starts quote happiness then comprises four elements individual moral purpose individual capacity collective moral purpose and collective capacity and remember he hasn't spent any of this chapter establishing why that's the case yeah he's been stating that it is the case and then giving examples of how things aren't that way that yep. we don't have individual moral purpose, that we don't have individual capacity. Not that we that that's necessary to have uh, happiness, but just that it's not the case. Yeah, our society was built on recognition of these four elements: the fusion of Athens and Jerusalem, tempered by the wit and wisdom of our founding fathers, led to the creation of a civilization of unparalleled freedom and replete with virtuous men, women striving to better themselves and the society around them. And if that is not just the fucking sixth grade glowing (laughs) view of the founding era without ever talking about the slavery or any of the bad stuff anything yeah that's that's exactly what the fuck that is yep 
you're not wrong it, this whole this whole end of it it's basically setting up the rest of the book um but again like the the divine meaning and reason are the two sources that he frames of uh, of how we can be a successful society and i think yeah right. just the thing I, I wrote at the end here is like those, those are fairly fundamentally incompatible um mm-hmm. i am interested to see how he twists he tries and, to twist and them just into on an example level you look at some of the most successful na- where people report the highest levels of happiness right mm-hmm. they are generally also the most secular nations yeah the north, the, the northern European nations, they, the Scandinavian nations, they're high, always report the highest levels of satisfaction and happiness, and they're some of the most secular on the planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I, I, yeah, there's shockingly no mention of the countries that report themselves to be most happy, um, and we exactly. shouldn't trust the socialists. <laughs> so I will, as I happiness. always do, read the final paragraph of this chapter, which is as follows: "Quote." The history of the West is built on the interplay between these two pillars, divine meaning and reason. We receive our notions of divine meaning from a three millennia old lineage stretching back to the ancient Jews. We receive our notions of reason from a 2,500 year old lineage stretching back to the ancient Greeks. In rejecting those lineages, in seeking to graft ourselves to rootless philosophical movements of the moment, cutting ourselves off from our own roots, we have damned ourselves to an existential wandering. We must take our way back towards our root. Make our way. We must make our way back toward our roots. Those roots took hold at Sinai, and that leads into the chapter we will be reading next time, Chapter Two, from the mountaintop. I have been to the mountaintop. (laughs) How do we feel so far with the first chapter of this book down? Okay. Is it what we expected? Um. Yeah, pretty much. I, there's no no particular surprises in there for me. I think, yeah, not not engaging with the scholarship in a meaningful way is what I kind of expected. And he, it's weird because it's like he's done the reading, but then is misrepresenting the reading or hasn't done all the reading or, or whatever that might be. Um, oh, this uh, is very much a Wikipedia-based book. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I've written articles. I, I I've written stuff myself where I was like, uh, I have this point, and I'm just gonna Google shit till I find stuff that <laughs> supports my point. Um, like, oh, this article that was largely discredited. I'm gonna say this supports right. my point. Um, but and, at least and I, I have don't, fucking like, we, note, we, like, we've talked about how Ben obviously has a decent education. He did, you know, apparently did well enough to get into Harvard Law, so he had good grades. He's not a stupid guy. So I think he he's done, I will say this much, he has done more research than any of the writers who we've read for these shows. I'm sure right? that's true. Most definitely, he did more work than any of the others. Yep. Yep, definitely. So, with all that out of the way, it is time, as I promised at the beginning of the show, to draw the winners of our copies of Triggered by Donald Trump Jr. And you can hear, I have the bowl with the names... And as Benedict can verify, I am raising it above my head so yes, that I cannot look I can, inside I can verify. and select the names. I, I am reaching verify. in. I am drawing the first name. I am holding the first name in front of the microphone and crinkling there and is. crinkling yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and crumpling. And this will be for my copy of the book. And this is, as I unfold it, although I stuck it together and it's a sticky note and that might be difficult. I don't know why I did the name. Yeah, it's a that was a bad choice. The first one goes to Andrew Jenko. Oh, gets the first you. copy of the book. All right. That is one out of the way. Second copy, Benedict's copy. Again, 
bowl above the head. Benedict, will you verify? I can verify, yes. Okay, second name coming out. Unfolding, crinkling first, of course. Crinkling and crankling and crumpling. Uh, second, unfolding the post-it note, which is harder than you'd think. I surely. And this copy goes to Miss Taru Takanen. One Benedict's copy of the book. Thank you both so much for being our patrons. We will be in contact with you to get your information and get our copies of the book sent out to you. We'll write a nice message in there. Benedict, write a nice message. I can write and, a nice uh, message. And we hope you enjoy all of our notes and jokes we forgot to do on the show and all the other stuff that are written in our copies of the book. Uh, we can't thank you all enough for being our patrons. Mm. But that's it. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, if you can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, drawings to win our copies of the books we read, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all so much for being our patrons. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, cowabunga, dude. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Grandmother's Book Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.